So for an introduction, I had written down, do you ever have uh, fear or even a sneaking suspicion that at the end of all of this, that you will not be counted among the righteous, that you will not make it to the end? Do you ever feel ups and downs in your life? Do you know what it is to be afraid? Do you know what it is to suffer? And I trust that you do. So how do we know? How do we know that we'll make it? And how would we ever have hope in the midst of a world that's fallen, living in bodies that are fallen, living in a world where things can change like that? How would we have hope? If you have your Bibles, open them to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be considering Romans 5, 1 to 5 today. Just a few words, friends, about where we have been in the letter to the Romans. This will help you if this is your first time here with us this morning. This will help you if you've been here for all of the Romans series. Just to continue to remind us of what Paul is writing to the saints in Rome. He began by saying that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. This is because the gospel reveals the righteousness that God gives to sinners that's entirely of faith. And he proves quite convincingly that that is the only way a fallen human being could ever be justified in his sight. Because all human beings, Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. And therefore, thereby, are incapable of being justified based upon their own obedience, based upon their own righteousness. Paul then beautifully depicts the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that he has fulfilled the law and died to fulfill its penalty, and that what he has accomplished by way of his fulfilling of the law's requirements and his sacrificial death in the place of sinners, his merits, his work, is counted to sinners by faith, apart from anything that they could ever do. Paul then illustrates that justification, being declared just in God's sight, is in fact entirely of faith apart from works by appealing to the Old Testament. He appeals primarily and most pointedly to Abraham. He says that Abraham was not justified by circumcision. He was justified before circumcision even was a thing. This was to make him the father of all who believe in Jesus, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Abraham also was not justified by works of the law, but he was justified apart from the law to teach us, even today, how any person, Jew or Gentile, would be justified in God's sight, only by faith, only through Christ. As it was with Abraham, so it is with us. That was Paul's point in chapter 4. Which brings us now to chapter 5. Listen now as I read God's word for us, beginning with verse 1 through verse 5. This is the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan today is to consider the text in three sections. Then I'm going to ask and answer briefly two questions. And then we're going to spend the rest of the time in three points of application and reflection. So I'll try to make that plain to you as we make our way through the message. So let's consider the text first, beginning in verse 1. You can put your eyes there. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Two objective statements. Statements of fact. We have been justified by faith. And so, we have peace with God. Peace with God in our hearts. Peace with God in our consciences through Christ. For He Himself is our peace. And He has made peace by the blood of His cross. It's important that we understand that we will never experience this peace by going about trying to establish our own righteousness. It cannot be done. If we go about seeking to establish a righteousness of our own in any measure, to any extent, we will not know this peace. It is only in receiving the righteousness of Christ that we would know and experience this peace with God. And having this righteousness of Christ, we look to God now, not as our judge, not as the avenger of all of our sins, but as our Father to whom we have been reconciled. As we sing here often, my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear. This peace is not earthly peace. You know that. I know that. Our Savior told us, in the world you'll have tribulation. The world will hate you, He said, just as the world hates me. Do not think, Jesus said, that I came to bring peace, but division. It's not earthly peace. This peace is not with the evil one, either. He seeks to devour. He seeks to deceive. He is still the great accuser of the brethren. This peace is not with our flesh. There is an irreconcilable war between our flesh and our spirit. These things are opposed to one another. Often resulting in us not doing what we want. This is, however, peace in our souls. It is confidence in God that He loves us, that He's adopted us, that He's for us, and that we have been joyously reconciled to Him through the work of Christ in our place. And so, massive question. Is this peace with God through Christ something that we have today and might not have tomorrow? Is it something we have today and might not have when we stand before the judgment seat? 
I ask because there are those who teach that we are justified by faith in Christ, but that we will be finally saved by faith in Christ and our obedience. That we have access to eternal life by faith in Christ, but that we will finally take possession of eternal life through faith in Jesus and our obedience. With all due respect, this text, Romans 5, 1 to 5, obliterates that perspective. I hope you see that. I hope by the time we leave here today, that's very plain. We have been justified by faith in Christ. We have peace with God through Christ. And we will clearly see that to the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, what is true today will be true tomorrow, and it will be true at the end of history. Jesus and the peace that we have with God through Him, beloved, is the lifeblood of the Christian life. As Robert Haldane wrote, the maintenance of this peace by preserving the conscience free from guilt by the continual application to the blood of Christ is the main point in the believer's walk with God and the powerful spring of the believer's obedience. Look at what Paul writes next, verse 2. Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now that is future looking. That is future oriented, is it not? We stand in grace by faith in Christ. And because of that, we rejoice, we exult, we boast in hope of the glory of God. We have nothing, of course, to exult or boast in concerning ourselves. But when it comes to Christ... That's a different matter. We should exult. We should rejoice. Rejoice, said the Lord, that your names have been written in heaven. Because of where we stand now, by faith, on account of Christ, we rejoice in the hope of our future. We rejoice in the hope of our future when we are glorified together with Christ. When... We will behold His glory that the Father gave Him before the foundation of the world. Where Paul goes next is significant. Verses 3 to 5. This present peace that brings with it future hope. So present peace brings future hope. That has everything to do with how we would approach suffering how we would endure suffering and how anything good would ever be produced in us through suffering. Because suffer we will. We are fallen people living in a fallen world. We rejoice in our suffering, says Paul, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And this hope does not put us to shame, he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now that God's love, that language there is ambiguous. Could mean our love of God. Could mean God's love 
for us, right? Our love toward others that God has given us, right? It could be that. Our love toward Him that He's given us, or it could be His love to us. We should understand that Paul is writing of God's love to us in Romans 5.5. It is God's love to us that grounds our hope. And it is precisely God's love to us that Paul is going to write about in the following verses. God loves us this way, that when we were enemies, Christ died, right? He's going to write of not of our love for God, but of God's love for us, the ground of our hope. These are wonderful verses. Consider, the righteousness of Christ is counted to the believer by faith. The believer is therefore justified and pronounced righteous by the judge of all the earth. The believer stands in grace in a justified state and therefore rejoices in the hope of future glory. Being justified, the believer will most certainly be sanctified in this life. And all of this enables him to glory even in the midst of present affliction. The believer is assured through it all because God's love to him has been poured into his heart by the Holy Spirit. The righteousness of Christ, the love of God, and the certain hope of future glory are the anchor of the soul that enables the believer to ride out all the storms and all the troubles and all the trials of this life under the sun. This is big for our understanding. For those who have faith in Jesus, it is a certainty that endurance and character and hope will be produced through their suffering. You want to talk about a practical word. That is a very practical word. Because every one of us knows suffering. And to be promised by God himself that on account of Christ, through the work of the Spirit in us, it is certain that endurance, character, and hope will be produced in us as we suffer. That is a good word. Saints, this is a theology of the cross, as it's been called, through history. It would be foolish. It might even be hypocritical for us. Those who find our salvation in the cross of Christ, who follow a crucified Savior, to think that it would be any other way. For Jesus, the way to the crown was through the cross. So too for us. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, that his disciples take up their cross and follow him, this is in large part what he means. That we, like him, will suffer. That we, like him, will be perfected through suffering. That for us, like for him, there will be suffering and then glory. The miracle in all of it is that God works steadfastness in his people through tribulation and That is supernatural. That is the work of God. This is only true 
and only possible through Christ and because of grace. The testimony of the Scripture is that the Lord tests and tries those who are His. Consider the words of the Psalms. Psalm 11.5 The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who does violence. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Two questions and brief answers. These are not exhaustive answers at all. They're questions that are worth asking and worth answering. Question number one. For the saints, suffering cultivates and produces hope. How so? For the saints, suffering cultivates and produces hope. How is that so? Well, Suffering, trial, tribulation, calamity, disaster, you fill in the blank, all of those things, they all serve to pry us away from everything to which we might cling. Those things, suffering and trial and tribulation, rend from our hands anything to which we might cling and anything in which we might hope. Other than who? We are forced to look away from ourselves in suffering We are forced to look away from ourselves in our circumstances, in our own good works, and look to God alone, who is our help and our salvation. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever, and let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For God alone my soul waits. From Him comes salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Second question. What's the point of all this? Suffering. Suffering that produces endurance, character, and hope. What's the point? There are a few things we can say here. One, this is in no particular order, but one, God is keeping us through this. This is how he keeps his people. He is working steadfastness in his people. Faith in Christ. Faith in the promises of God in spite of circumstance. That's God's work. He does it through trial. He's keeping us. He's producing endurance and character and hope in us. And a hope, by the way, that will not put us to shame. So that's one thing we can say. What's the point? So that we might be kept. Second, I think this is fair to say. The scriptures speak in these ways. We sing of these things. We trust the Lord that somehow eternity will be all the sweeter for the things that we endured now. 
the things that we endure now, if possible, will make being present with the Lord and with one another removed from sin and pain and suffering that much sweeter. Third, what is produced in us through suffering is all kinds of good for our brothers and sisters and for our neighbors. We'll talk more about this later. Our sanctification, our growth, is not for us. It's for our brothers and sisters. It's for our neighbor. And nextly, it's for the honor and glory of God. So that's next. What's the point of all this? God is honored. God is made much of when His people hope in Him in the midst of pain and heartache. Think Job 1, 2, Have you considered my servant? He trusts me. Next, God accomplishes his purposes through us as he works endurance and character and hope in us. Right? He does that through suffering. He accomplishes his purposes through us as he works these things in us. Not his purposes for us as individuals. This thing is bigger than me. He accomplishes his purposes of redemption and his purposes in the church as he works in and through his people in these ways. The endurance and the character and the hope that was produced in the saints through suffering, beloved, will one day be celebrated in the presence of Christ forevermore. We will quite literally stand on the tabletops and celebrate the fact that endurance and hope and character was worked in my brother, was worked in my sister on account of Christ by the Spirit. We will rejoice in that forever. So those are just a few things that we can say. What's the point of suffering in this life? Now, for the rest of our time together, I have three points for our consideration of reflection and application. Number one, present justification is the guarantee of final salvation. I'll say it again. Present justification is the guarantee of final salvation. This text, Romans 5, 1 to 5, makes that crystal clear. We have eternal peace with God on account of Christ alone. You want something to leave here with today? Leave with that. Stake your life on that. Jesus has secured that for us. And he's given it to us. A very common perspective today is that election, divine election, is unconditional. There is nothing that we can do on the front end to contribute to our salvation. Our justification is an act of God by his sovereign grace. And once justified, the order of the day is obedience. So far, so good. But here's where it goes. If you aren't serious enough, if you don't work hard enough, if you don't do well enough, you will just prove yourself to be an unbeliever. You can't do anything to save yourself, but once you have professed faith in Jesus, the only thing you can do in this equation is mess it up. Meaning, your life is going to prove that you were never legit. So don't let that be you. 
Many a preacher preaches like that. You don't want to be that one, do you? That's the tone. Here's how the reasoning goes. If you are justified, you will do good works. True. Amen. If there are no good works, you are not justified. True. Therefore, do good works in order to prove you're justified. Do good works so that you'll be finally saved. Wrong. Streams only flow one way. Good works are only produced by justification and life that's been received. Fruit is only produced because the tree is alive. You don't tell the the tree to produce fruit so that it might live. Another way this is effectively presented. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be justified. Now, if you are in Christ, you will live this way. And if you are not living this way well enough, then you're not in Christ. So you better dot, dot, dot. It's the tone of many a preacher. The question. The question, is that how the apostles write? No. How do they write? Let this comfort your soul. I am preaching to people, myself included in this number, who I trust, love the Lord, want to obey, and battle the corruption of the flesh. Let this comfort your soul. The apostles affirm the saints. You are in Christ by faith. You are justified. You have been adopted as a child of God. You have been given every spiritual blessing on account of Christ. Everyone means everyone. Nothing has been withheld from you. You have peace with God today and you'll have it forever. You will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. You will be with the Lord forevermore. And so now, beloved, live this way. The apostles use the law as a guide for the Christian's living. Saints, this is how the redeemed live. Live like this. And upon the occasion of arrogant sin, They say the things like this. Why would you ever pursue things for which the judgment of God is coming? Why? Why would you do that? You used to be that. You're not that anymore. You're now this. You used to be that, but now you've been cleansed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified on account of Christ. Beloved, live like who you are now. It's how the apostles write. It's a very different tone. You may be sitting there and you may say, brother, what can we say about the judgment seat? What about that? Psalm 130 and verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Nobody. 
But all of those iniquities, all of our iniquities that could ever be marked, Jesus took them all. He made satisfaction for them all. He is able to do that, saints. Our sin is covered by Christ himself. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Next verse, Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be what? Feared. That you may be reverenced. That we may live in awe. That we might obey. Who can stand before the Lord of hosts? The one who never walked in the counsel of the wicked. Who never stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers. The one whose delight was always in the law of the Lord. Who meditated on it, not just for 15 minutes in the morning, but your entire life. Who shall dwell on his holy hill? He who walked blamelessly and always did what was right and always spoke truth in his heart. Who never slandered with his tongue and never did evil to his neighbor. You have not lived like that. Neither have I. But Jesus, beloved, he did. All of the righteousness required to dwell with God, Christ did it for us, and he's given it to us. This is why Paul will write later in this letter, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. But brother, you say, what about Matthew 7? Some of the most frightening words in all the Bible, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. What about those? I invite you to turn. The words will be on the screen behind me. Matthew 7, 21. These are the words of our Savior. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, in light of the entire Sermon on the Mount, what would be the will of the Father? Think about what Jesus has said. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. You must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. I'm telling you, if you're angry, you've broken the law. You've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you've lusted after someone, you've broken the law. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In light of the entire Sermon on the Mount, what would be the will of the Father? In John's Gospel, a group of Jews asked Jesus that question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? You know what he said? This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. You can't do it. Later he says in that same interchange in John 6, this is the will of my father. That everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Matthew 7.22, look at it. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name 
and do many mighty works in your name. You're smart people. You're thoughtful people. You answer this question. What are these people trusting in? What are they pointing to? What's the ground of their appeal? It's what they did. Their works. Their lives. Beloved, that is damning. Verse 23. And then Jesus says, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people were trusting in what they did. They're trusting in their record. That's their appeal. And we know that any fallen human being's record is not a record of law keeping. It's a record of what? Law breaking. If we're pointing to our own record, there's nothing there but lawlessness. Hence what he says. I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Then in verse 24, Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words, the entire sermon I've preached, who hears these words, the heralding of the law, right? Moses received the law on a mountain called Sinai, and then the lawgiver incarnate preaches a sermon on a mountainside. Having done that, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Here, whoever hears these words of mine and does the will of my Father in heaven. We've already considered what that is. The rock upon which you will build your house is not your obedience. It is Christ. Blessed, he says, are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Blessed. Seek first, he says, the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. How do you get that? By faith in Jesus. That's his point. So that was all number one by way of reflection and application. Number two. Rewind five seconds. I just want to make sure that you're tracking with me. Present justification guarantees final salvation, right? Because of Christ. How do you know? Because Jesus. So number two, reflection and application. Rejoicing in our sufferings. What Paul is writing about in Romans 5, 3 and following. Rejoicing in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance and character and hope. All of that is grounded in knowing that God loves us. It's grounded in knowing that we have peace with him and it's grounded in the fact that we will be finally saved. I realize that was like a puritanical header for a point if there ever was one. Let me repeat it. Rejoicing in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, character, and hope is grounded in knowing that God loves us, that we have peace with him, and that we will be finally saved. You remove that peace you remove that certainty, you remove that comfort and that assurance, this thing falls apart. James 1, 2 through 4. You're familiar with these verses. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials 
of various kinds. Pause button. Trials, tribulations, calamity, disaster. What do they share in common? In and of themselves, they are not good. In and of themselves, they are bad. James goes on. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness will have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. That's God's work. Consider it joy when you encounter trial. Because trial is not good. Suffering is not joyful, but consider it so. Why? Because God is working steadfastness in the saints. He's working steadfastness in you. I trust it makes sense to you that you could only trust that, only believe that, and that could only happen if you are God's child. Guaranteed. Romans 8.18. Again, present justification, future hope, right? The fact that we can rejoice in suffering and have a godly perspective on it, is grounded in the fact that we have peace with God forever. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Those verses are not statements about the insignificance of the suffering. They're statements about the greatness of the glory. In this life, the saints suffer. In this life, the saints endure the discipline of God. Discipline, even when it comes from our loving Heavenly Father. We considered this a couple of weeks ago from Hebrews 12. So when we encounter discipline, it's not pleasant. Discipline is never pleasant in the moment. So how is it that we endure suffering? And how is it that we bear up under discipline? It is precisely by knowing that we are Christ's. And it is precisely by knowing that we are sons and daughters of the Most High. Consider the words of our confession. This is 17.1 if you want to look at it later. Those God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and has given the precious faith of His elect can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Therefore, He still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that lead to immortality. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. The felt sight of the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured from them for a time through their unbelief and the temptations of Satan, yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation, where they will enjoy their purchased possession. For they are engraved on the palms of his hands, and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. God be praised. How is it that we endure suffering? How is it that we bear up under discipline? By knowing that the Lord has given us a new name and a new status 
and an eternal inheritance and that he's not taking any of that away. Again, consider our confession. 12.1. God has granted that all those who are justified would receive the grace of adoption in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. By this, they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. They inherit his name, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are given compassion, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father. Yet they are never cast off, but are sealed for the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Many of you in this room are parents or have been. Even those in the room who are not parents at this present time, you'll understand what I'm about to say. We, as fallible people, with our own children, how do we interact with them? How do we treat them? What do we say to them? There's a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of successes and failures. But we are clear with our kids. We say something along these lines. Son, daughter, no matter how badly you might fail, you will still have my last name. You'll be my son. You'll be my daughter. It's striking that many of us suspect God is far less gracious and merciful to us than we are to our own children. The witness of the scripture is the exact opposite. If you who are wicked know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so your Father in heaven? The Lord, last time we checked, when he describes himself, he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He does not and he will not forsake his children. That's number two. Finally, we've made it to our last point of reflection and application. Number three is this. We don't trust our circumstances. We don't trust our feelings. We don't trust our life. We trust Christ. And we trust his life. You want application. It doesn't get more essential than that. This is applicable every moment, every hour, every day of your life, every day of mine. When all seems lost, when things are at their darkest, when all around our souls give way, when we don't know what tomorrow brings, and if we were honest, we're not sure we want to wake up to face it, what do we have? Beloved, we have a Savior, our Shepherd, our King, the one who gave himself for us, the one who said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I have gone and prepared a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to be with me that where I am, you may be also. That's what he said. When our hearts are breaking to the point that we didn't know we could hurt so badly, 
When we have, as the psalmist write, have soaked our bed with tears. We flooded our bed and we have soaked our couch because we're weeping that much. In the hospital room or at the graveside, when you've just buried a spouse or a parent or a child or a dear friend, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the hope of the glory of God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Beloved, Jesus is trustworthy. He knows us. He loves us. He says, come to me and I'll never cast you out. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest for your soul. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. To his disciples the night before his crucifixion, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Indeed, we do. Let's pray.